0: Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this, our fifth season, we are looking at Joe Johnston's 2011 film Captain America, The First Avenger. I'm Andy Nelson from the Next Real Film Podcast.
1: And I'm Pete Wright. Welcome to the minute where I give up my cause celeb on this podcast and retire.
0: (laughs) We're certainly going to talk about that because this is Minute 76, which begins with Steve confirming the meeting in the morning and ending with a big boom. Joining us on the show today and all week, we have Jason Dittmer, professor of political geography at University College London, and author of Captain America and the Nationalist Superhero. Jason, hi! Welcome to the show and the world of Movies by Minutes podcasting. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, it is going to be a fun week. Uh, you've got a little bit of Captain America history with you. Do you want to real quick just kind of give us a sense of of kind of you know? I mean, you have this book about co- Captain America. What's your kind of sense and your history with the character?
2: I mean, you know. Uh, maybe like a lot of people who have studied comics, I read them when I was in junior high. Captain America was kind of my favorite character. And um, when I was going through graduate school, I kind of came, the idea of kind of studying Captain America came back to me because I could remember these key storylines that um, had kind of, I, I think, really informed my sense of what being an American was. And so I thought, what an interesting thing to study is kind of thinking about Captain America comics as a kind of almost like a pedagogical tool of you know what what does it mean to be american and so um, I thought it would be kind of a small project It ended up taking about 10 years and culminated in the book. And, you know, um, and, but it was
1: lucky. Cause... And l- lest we say you expatriated. <laughs> like, I did. This is awesome that you read all these Captain America comics and moved to London. Well,
2: that's part of why the project took so long was because I, I started doing Canadian and British superheroes as well. So Captain America, I kind of treat as this, you know, like kind of character that is the first, not really the first, but the most successful um one of a superhero that's kind of aligned with a country. And so I was interested in how that got done in other countries as well, right? Because Captain sure. America is so American, obviously. Um, so characters like Captain Britain and Captain Canuck and and things like that. Um, so it was a very fun project to do. Um, and I, I thought it might be career suicide because this was all before the MCU started. Um, And, you know, people would be like, is, this is great, but, you know, is it really relevant, you know, and then <laughs> the MCU started and became the biggest cultural <laughs> phenomenon of all time. And I was like, suckers.
0: <laughs> man are you in the right place <laughs> now you gotta now you gotta start telling people well kevin feige actually read my book and that's really yeah, that kicked that's, things that's off. How it, that's how it started yeah. yeah i wish i didn't get in on any of that
2: sweet script consultant
0: money but uh, uh you know yeah. if you're out there what Kevin, a i'm available you dream yeah that's right that's right uh, well, we are coming in, uh, you know, back in the scene. Uh, Peggy has shown up and she's talking to Stephen Bucky in the Whip and Fiddle Pub. Um, or is she? Is she talking to them both? <laughs> uh, so the and of course, the red dress, uh, this beautiful red dress that uh, Haley Atwell is wearing, which, of course, was designed for uh, Melanie Laurent from uh, Inglorious Bastards, but didn't get used in the film. So here she is wearing it. Um, how does how does this scene play for the two of you? Sigh. Uh, okay, Jason, got to catch you up. Yeah, Pete. Pete, why don't you talk about your treatise, so Jason? I've had a real. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah we got to get this out on the table because this, I think, is where I have to hang up officially. Hang up the mantle. I, for the longest time, have been holding a candle that that possibly. Uh, H- Haley Atwell's character it doesn't love Steve, isn't crushing on Steve because, you know, of he, she's crushing on him, but for science. Like, I like him for science. I want him to come back from battle for science. I really want to take him in and make sure he's okay for science, and I can't, I, after this minute, even I cannot hold on to that banner anymore. I can't carry it. She is full-on crushing on Steve, and It is much to the disappointment of Bucky, who not only appears not to be in the trio with them, but appears to have been shot so dramatically at a different time than this conversation happened, almost as a metaphor to punish me uh, for for what I have believed for so long. So I you know what? It's over. They're definitely in a, a romantic endeavor now. Screw the superhero politics. This is all about love.
2: Well I think it, to me it's interesting that that's kind of your uh you know where your mind goes on it I can totally see i mean there is such i think i think the confusion around not your confusion but the general confusion around their relationship um maybe comes down to a kind of questions about femininity and masculinity and authority because. Uh, Clearly, her kind of whole character is this anachronism, right, Um, that that a woman would be in charge. I mean, a lot of the early part of the movie kind of deals with that in terms of the the recruits not respecting her and so on. And, um, you know, and so here you have uh, a woman who outranks a man, but the man is clearly, you know, more than most men. And, you know, under what circumstances during wartime could that kind of relationship really emerge? You know, that you have this woman who has to be tough, has to be strong. Um, Well, I think we'll talk about that in future episodes. Um, Has to um, remain an authority, you know, against all odds among all these men. And at the same time, how then could she be vulnerable to Steve Rogers? You know, um, it's a a star-crossed lovers kind of thing, I think, which clearly is how it plays out.
1: Well, it, it is, too, but you don't and, and, and you don't. I think this is the first movie to that point specifically, like this is the first point in the movie where like we see her as a woman. And because you don't put a woman in a red dress without sending a rather tropey message, yeah. Like this is a complete change in tone for her character. And it's an opportunity to shed some of the sort of the soldiery, ba- uh, like uh, the regalia that she's had to carry as, as part of her character.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting perspective that we have with the the characters here and, and the way that we're meant to read them, because it definitely feels like there's I mean, what is her intention for coming here just to confirm this appointment with Steve and wear that dress? I mean, why isn't she coming in just her her regular Peggy outfit that we've seen her in throughout the film? Uh, I mean, she's is she hoping that Steve will, you know, kind of figure out how to be comfortable with a woman and actually ask her to dance? Like, what's what are the intentions here? Or was she just planning on coming and, uh, and looking this way just to let Steve know that uh, that she isn't just, you know, Peggy Car- or Agent Carter, but she also is, I suppose you could say Peggy Carter. Uh, it, it's an interesting perspective that she has there. and 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 part of it also, I think, goes to. And I think, Pete, this goes to, you know, a lot of the issues that, you know, that you were bringing up is that this really wasn't there. I mean, they kind of try to get this set up in that car ride when they're having the conversation. Um, But really, as soon as he's hot, that's when the real draw comes. And so to that end, there is definitely this angle of I really am more attracted to you now that you're so hot. And I think there's there's definitely something there. Uh, even in this scene as they're looking at each other.
1: Right, right. I mean, this is straight out, like, this is so, it's impossibly tropey. It is impossible. Possibly tropey, right? Were you looking at me, Neo, or were you looking at the woman in the red dress, mm-hmm. the Matrix? Like, this is the femme fatale. This is the okay. We have a soldier. We have a character we've only known as this kind of person. And also, this is a sexual person. And that's what the red dress is is symbolizing here. And you, both audience and protagonist character, Steve, need to now see her that way. And it, it's, a, it's a utility player right here, the red dress.
2: Yeah, I mean you have to ask what like why does she even have that dress at all like in, in I, I right? yeah you, know, you you packed that for the war? I mean um you know yeah. the whole thing feels rather <laughs> you know surprised she's probably got a Foot Locker somewhere and somehow that's taking right. up like a quarter of the space along with the the heels and everything. I mean um yeah, it does seem a bit unlikely, but you know, I guess in a in a movie with uh, super soldier serum and you know, vibranium shield and things like that. Uh, a red dress that folds up into a pocket or something is, is not impossible.
0: Right. <laughs> Small potatoes. It's actually Small made of, of carbon polymer. We never know. But. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's very safe. She's very safe, yeah. safe in that dress.
1: Well, and to your point, also, Andy, like they bring her in and then she has this little conversation, which we should talk about specifically. And then she leaves like she walks away like she's not here to show off for anybody else. But Steve, that's my read on it. Like we're finally here uh, and I'm done podcasting. I lost. <laughs> I'm lost. Well, i glad you're on I board. Mean,
0: <laughs> yeah. It's interesting, though, because uh in this bar full of men and they're i mean they're all getting drunk they're all singing pub songs they're having a grand old time and this beautiful woman walks in and nobody other than Bucky, really, asks her to dance. Like, you'd think in a situation like this, like, I mean, you know, people, I I think when they're looser and they're drinking and stuff, I think more people would have said something to her. It is interesting that it's almost like everybody knows that this is Agent Carter and you don't mess with Agent Carter. Like, it it plays in such a strange way where it's like, I'm only here to talk to Steve and I'm not going to acknowledge Anybody else in this whole situation forget that I'm in a red dress. It's it like it's it's kind of odd how it ends up playing. Really,
2: I mean, not to be a one trick pony in my argument, but I think you know if you kind of view that through the lens of rank, you get something kind of interesting, right? That she may come come in like a femme fatale, but these guys have been kind of trained to you know not think of her in that way or or to respect her or so on. Maybe if they didn't think that at the beginning of the movie, by now they do, you know. And Steve is this guy who. you know he he didn't get promoted to captain the normal way right he's you know he's not private america or something like that you know he's the only one with a sufficient rank in a way uh either literally or kind of figuratively in terms of the you know a kind of hierarchy of masculinities to um to really be able to engage with her but of course he doesn't actually have the kind of social capability of doing it um uh, which is is probably the the travesty of the scene or the tragedy excuse me
0: yeah and i think that's the big thing because i i feel like this is a sense of us returning to uh, the puny, Steve, the one who doesn't know how to, you know, uh, kind of have a conversation with a woman yet, Though the one who is in the car who just, who acknowledged, like, I just don't really know what to say. And this is that guy. He's never had that opportunity. I mean, he may have turned into Captain America, but then he went on to the USO show tour. Now, according to, uh, you know, She-Hulk, something much later, Uh, in this whole franchise uh, potentially there was a time during the uso tour where he did lose his virginity and that's kind of i mean who knows if what bruce uh, told his cousin is is true but that is out there so potentially he has i mean he was spending an awful lot of time i mean he was with all of those uso dancers and everybody for months but still and maybe it's just because it's more of a relationship sort of thing that kind of that connection you have with somebody that you're actually more interested in that kind of you know keeps him completely locked up here you know it's it's interesting how he is so quiet he doesn't seem nervous though it's not like he's stammering or, or anything it's just he's he's staring uh very stoically at her
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's really a, that's a good note, because the way Evans plays this, I mean, performatively, there's swagger in in his in the way he moves and the way he pats Bucky on the shoulder and says, maybe she's got a friend like there is. He he has a sense of confidence in this conversation, but subtlety that he didn't have an, an awareness that he didn't have in any of those earlier scenes.
2: I mean, I think in the. Um at the risk of sounding like I'm plugging my book, I have a footnote in there because I actually did the math on in the comics when he lost his virginity. And by, by my math, uh, he was 42 <laughs> should, we, should we let that hang for a minute? You
1: did math on when <laughs> Captain America lost his virginity. Can I just, well, I feel like if there isn't a lock for a title yet, that's going
2: to be the one for this episode. But by, by my math, he's 42 years old when he loses his virginity, at least in the pages of the comic. You know, that's again, you don't know what happens off page. But, um, But I think there is something Interesting about the character there in that which they've carried over into the movies in this kind of scene where um, one you know something about his character is that he has this kind of iron discipline so like desire is kind of not a an emotion that kind of goes easily with Steve Rogers right he's a, he's about intention morality um, discipline I would kind of say are his kind of things not kind of getting loose and um, and desiring or letting himself go. Um, and I think clearly part of that is this, you know, storyline of him being plucked from a situation where he doesn't seem to have had a lot of romantic opportunities or even interactions with women, perhaps because of the war and so on as well, to, uh, the scene where all of a sudden he's an object of desire, but has no idea how to kind of interact and make that work. And, you know, so I think his kind of physical comfort in his body that you guys are just referencing is a kind of follow on from his kind of that's his comfort zone. His physical capabilities are so extraordinary. And he's kind of at one with his body in so many ways, except when it comes to sexuality. And, uh, you know, in this situation, I mean, going back to the red dress, right. She's clearly not just coming in to talk to him in an unintimidating way, right. It's a very much a kind of peacocking move. Yeah, Mm -hmm. You know, she's come in and all the jaws are on the ground. And he's definitely not ready for that. Right. I mean, he's you know, he's not going to be confident in that situation. He's never probably been in that situation before.
0: So, well, he's probably been in the situation before, perhaps like the exact situation. But and this is where it plays interesting with this being this threesome. It was likely Bucky and the woman who were all eyes for each other, and the woman was completely—I mean, as Bucky says, like, the woman would have completely been ignoring Steve, paying complete attention to Bucky, and so— that's where it kind of plays in an, in an interesting way and we get a sense that this is probably something that steve and bucky have been through a lot but situation is completely reversed here and bucky acknowledges that i mean he's the one who's talking to peggy but peggy is saying all of her responses directed at steve and then she leaves and Bucky's you know completely at a loss i mean how does that play as far as uh, the way that it is between these three people and not just a conversation between steve and peggy
1: this is a challenge I have with the scene is because I think it's edited weirdly and I, I think the cuts to Bucky don't play for me like he's he's looking in the wrong place. it's like it, it just feels like a kind of a sloppy three-way conversation it, and and I don't know if that's intentional, but um, I, I like what they're communicating and I like the fact that Bucky leaves um, you know with a leaves the conversation you know having been played a little bit but um, but it's it's a weird sequence the way it was cut
0: well do you think that's because it was specifically designed um every shot of steve and bucky or sorry of of steve and peggy is an over the shoulder so we see the two of them always in the shots together and when we cut to bucky it's always isolated it's purposefully i would say um isolating bucky so that he's there but he's not actually included in this
1: yeah to to a point that it feels a little bit unnatural to me though. Like I get the visual symbolism and the and the sort of editorial symbolism, but it it just feels unnatural. It feels like he's not not a part of the scene.
0: How's does it play for you, Jason?
2: I, I I mean I can see both of your interpretations. I think they're really good good uh interpretations of the scene. When I'm thinking about the way um, maybe moving away from the cinematography because I uh, to be honest with you, I'm not as observant as you guys are on that front, but I think um when I think about Bucky being that bit about kind of Steve replacing Bucky as the kind of object of desire, you know, and part of that is obviously how he looks and the transformation, but I think it's also, you know, maybe it's about power and Bucky is in those opening scenes when he like saves um, Steve from the bully and that kind of thing, you know, he's powerful, you know, and now it's Steve who's powerful and on a level that kind of is so visible to other people people and especially women um probably not just women uh which is something the, the movie doesn't really <laughs> engage with um
1: yeah. we're not allowed to do that yeah <laughs> no so only vaguely
2: reference it in the future long. captain yeah. america movie um <laughs> but yeah i think i it, to me it's it's kind of a, it's also about celebrity and power perhaps in a way that it's not just i mean he's obviously good looking i mean that's you know not uh i think <laughs> in doubt but i think you know there's something about him as a kind of focal point of everything that draws in
1: attention. Well, and it's sort of, we're checking boxes to that end, right? Like, and this is all still pretty new to Bucky, right? Like he's just discovered, he's just been rescued pretty recently. Mm-hmm. And he's mm-hmm. just discovered that his buddy has changed pretty dramatically. And so we're checking the boxes. Okay. He's a captain, maybe a fake captain, but he's a captain. He's also incredibly handsome. And now this is another box. He's also a, a sexual target and,
0: um, and a hero of men. And so, it's hard and you know i mean famous his picture is on the wall right behind them as they're having this conversation like (laughs) it is a totally different steve that bucky is dealing with now and so it's interesting like the way that it all plays and after after peggy leaves and they've confirmed this appointment for the morning this reaction from bucky about being invisible i mean it i i think that there's something to that and but it's also interesting because it's I think there's a perspective there. And I know Steve and Bucky are always like, you know, throwing digs at each other and stuff like that. But there is this sense that, um, like, what is it really saying about uh, the friendship between Bucky and Steve and kind of how Bucky viewed Steve all of these years when he was just this little guy, like he was the guy that he could kind of count on to like, you know, come as the, as the second date if there were two women or something like that. But it, it seems like there's this sense of Bucky, like, Uh, You know, I don't know. I guess it's interesting, like how he perhaps maybe viewed their friendship all of those years before the change.
1: Well, I think the nuance of Sebastian Stan's performance is exactly that. Like as Steve uh, and Chris Evans, you know, plays this with swagger, I get the feeling that Stan is really playing this authentically, not like, oh, I'm just casually accepting that my friend has changed. But, oh, my God, I've lost something in myself and I don't know how to rationalize that.
2: I mean, it's interesting, they, you know, in a way, there's a whole other kind of interesting storyline that, that is kind of prominent through its absence, which is that like, their friendship carries on completely unimpeded, despite these radical changes. I mean, you know, you have Sebastian Stan kind of or, or Bucky kind of, you know, accommodating, but he's kind of doing it in a jocular fashion. They go out together afterwards, the two of them. It's It's never like an issue, even though in a lot of friendships, those kind of power dynamics are... You know, you upend them at your own peril, right? And the friendship fragments when uh, you know, one one friend gets rich or something, you know, and the other one remains <laughs> remains poor. You know, those kinds of things can ruin friendships. But this is like the most radical asymmetry you could get, and yet it's still, um, you know, they, they carry on it. I mean, it's, I suppose it's a testament to their friendship, but it also perhaps seems a little unrealistic, you know.
0: Well, and that's that's an interesting point because that. Uh as their as things shift in the stories in future films like their friendship is really going to be tested and it is interesting how how much the core of their friendship must have uh, like the strength of it must have been incredible for them to really work through everything that they had to in all the following stories and everything that changes so um, so that i mean it's interesting and and i suppose that um yeah, I, I guess we just really need to buy into the fact that whatever that core friendship was, that was the two of them and Bucky being the guy who would save Steve from bullies and Steve being the guy who would be the extra man coming on dates and stuff like that. That core friendship of theirs could last anything. I mean, it's, it's interesting the way that it plays. All right. Any last uh, thoughts on the scene here um, while we're in our pub? I think we need to talk about
1: the blue goo, blue goo pee.
0: Uh, oh, you know, before we do, though, I did want to say we do have a shift in our pub uh, music. Um, it goes from um, the music we had before to Sweet Betsy from Pike. And that uh, it we don't get into the lyrics. We just kind of get the musical shift and the scene changes. So that's uh, the last piece of music we have there in the pub as we shift to uh, the uh, Starks Lab over back in the Allied headquarters And, uh, yeah, it's time to do some testing of a pellet. Uh, So Steve had stolen this cartridge um, when he was at the factory. And here we are with Howard Stark pulling a glowing pellet out to do some studies on it. Um, Thoughts on this scene?
1: I'm worried about it because I never interpreted the blue stuff as a pellet, as pelletized. I feel like we could do an entire hour of, of this of of how they're interpreting that this, so this cartridge is full of little pellets of little peas like this
0: when he picks one up i mean it's it's hard to tell and we didn't really talk about the specific look of it back in the factory but it kind of looks like something that's full of little glowing paintballs is kind of what it looked like so it i don't know it had that sense back then that that's kind of what it was or how it was it just we'd never seen it put together this way i suppose hmm. Yeah. Jason, what do you think of the way that the the Tesseract energy is being used here? I mean, I think one delves too
2: deeply into these into the science of these things at, <laughs> at your own peril. You, know? you, do,
1: you do know what show you're on, right?
2: <laughs> okay, I'm sorry, sorry. Uh, I, I thought this was the Marvel half hour. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, you know, the, there's so many questions I think you could say about how yeah. You know, the power of the Tesseract gets divvied up and dispersed to a whole bunch of foot soldiers and um, somehow maintains intact.
1: And, you know, I mean, there's there's a lot going on there. Well, I you know, I just I just feel like it's it, in so many of the places where its power is exerted in a sequence. It is exerted through like a, and, and determined through like a beam or an energy wave or something that that just sort of absorbs and distributes you know, power and bodies. And so to see it as a pellet was a bit of context shock for me. Like I just had never quite interpreted that their weapons are shooting pellets that do kind of this magical thing that it's doing. And because the MCU is so big on beams, I always looked at this more as like an energy battery than something holding... These, this pelletized Tesseract, Tesseract energy. So that's that's a thing that it just stops me. And that's that's always a question that we come to with these movies is what when does the magical science stop us from actually driving along with the movie? And this is one of those sequences where I stop. How can you, with all the stuff that they've been doing that we've seen with the Tesseract so far, how can these production design choices, you know, stop me and make me think about it? And this makes me think about it.
0: Well, it's a good question, because when you see a pellet, when you see a physical piece of something, and you had seen previously the glowing blue cube, it kind of makes you think, oh, okay, so they're pulling these pellets out of the cube, and it's it's finite, so eventually the cube will all be used up in all of these pellets, but they're making them small enough so that they can shoot them or whatever it is they're doing. Yeah, And it's not designed that way, and that's where it gets a little funky, because it's like... Whatever this glowing box of energy is, suddenly we're able to, you know, turn it into something physical that's holding it. And and perhaps all it is, and, and you know, again, yeah, we're getting way too deep in kind of this, uh, you know, Zola science that he's doing here. But I guess the, I don't know, the way I read it is... He has designed a pellet that is holding a very small piece of that energy. And then the guns that he's designing are basically creating a focused path for that energy to travel when it's shot. That is like turning into the beam that is, you know, disintegrating people and blowing buildings up. Right,
1: right.
2: If I could do a super dork deep dive on this in the in the, in the <laughs> comics and try and redeem myself from my uh, earlier comment about... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to seem like a normie. Um, <laughs> but the um, in the comics, um, the the Tesseract is called the Cosmic Cube, and it's a kind of yes. device that can remake reality according to whoever's holding it. You know, so it's a it's really a vastly different kind of. MacGuffin uh, than what we have here. And I think in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you do see a kind of broad obsession with energy, right? That energy is a kind of, you know, whether it's the, um, you know, Tony Stark's heart stuff or, um, you know, a- everything is in in a way about being able to, and, and this is, I think, the case of the Tesseract, that it, it, the idea is that it's a portal to some sort of other dimension that is full of energy. And so, you know, how do you take something like that that's so powerful, so uh, entirely world-changing and put it into a World War II context where you can have a World War II movie around it, right? You have to kind of turn it into something that's a bit more, you know, mid-20th century, uh, or else the whole war is over in two minutes when, you know, the Red Skull decides he's now king of the world and he's just going to make the whole world, you know, a monarchy or whatever. Um, So, you know, I think you're right that in a way there's a retrofitting of a kind of uh, energy device to you know, and we might think of it as a kind of proto nuclear power kind of a thing. Like if you could imagine nuclear bullets, right, um, or right. nuclear, you know, blasters or whatever. Um, that it's really about having some sort of delivery device for this infinite energy.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good point, and I think this is this gets to you know the challenges that the the that they had just designing this universe, and in this case. To give Stark something to hold and blow up, right? And it has to be small enough that it's not uh, that that we don't question the credulity of the size of the explosion, uh, but big enough to demonstrate its power and and sort of uh, technological authority and um, wow factor. And I I think in that regard it works. It's just picking up tesseract energy with tweezers. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's, a part that's that's all. I'll, I'll stop perseverating on it should be
2: barbecue tongs or something at least (laughs) (laughs) definitely
1: be tongs and he needs to be wearing mitts of some sort yeah yeah
0: yeah. well to that end I, i was doing some digging on these this this whole idea of mechanical arms that scientists use to handle dangerous objects i was trying to kind of do some digging into that and kind of the robotic arms that that they would use what's interesting and this film is going to do that we're going to be talking about this a couple times. Um, you know, right in this kind of section of the film, Howard Stark is using something that isn't invented until 1958. Uh, General Motors created something called the Unimate uh, that they used to assist with automotive building. Interestingly, it kind of looked like dummy back in Iron Man. Um, it's So it's a little different, but that is kind of what led to what scientists would use like this, where you have the kind of the handles on the outside of a, of a case, And then the arms on the inside of the case that they would use to, like, handle radioactive materials, things like that. Uh, And so, yeah, I mean, we talked about how they were trying to amp up the science and, you know, make it a little 10% more than what had been around at the time. I mean, I suppose if you're jumping to 1958, I suppose you could say that's, you know, 10% more, you know, Howard's using something like this. And so to that end, I mean, it's kind of, I like that we're seeing him using something like this. And I think that's kind of a cool... Uh, a cool thing that we have. So I mean at least there's at least there's that.
2: I mean I I think the the whole frame of the movie is one of kind of a retro futurism, you know, which is absolutely kind of you're going back to a time when scientific progress wasn't something that terrified us, you know, that you can dream of a world of flying cars and everything's kind of gleaming and modern and and not kind of run down and ratty like we now kind of see the, the modern world to be. Um you know, you're not alienated by technology. You're, you know, uh, surmounting life itself through through technology and you could think of that as steve's super soldier serum which you know several decades later we would call steroids um and and not (laughs) not view so positively right Right. um so i I think yeah there's a there's interesting i mean i guess we're still waiting on general motors to come
0: up with the flying cars um hopefully still waiting hopefully that's in the in the future here fingers crossed Uh what do you both think of uh you, we've got this little moment where Howard kind of throws a um a little dig at uh Steve Rogers about oh I can't imagine you know he says alpha and beta rays are neutral though I doubt Rogers picked up on that um uh, that he says to his uh, engineer assistant how do, does that play for you like why why is Howard kind of saying that as far as you know what he's thinking about Steve or how do you read that
1: I don't know. What's with it? What's with it? Is he do we get that he's feeling somehow uh, inferior to Steve at this point? They haven't quite figured out their relationship.
0: Well, that's what I'm wondering. It it, it plays like that. Like he's saying something because he has to say, I I still do have things about me that are better than Steve.
1: Yeah, right. I'm still useful here.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's the kind of classic. Um, I mean, I, in some ways, we're foreshadowing a discussion for per- future episodes, so I'll try and veer away from that. Um, But, (laughs) you know, the the differentiation between the brain and the body is something that runs through the superhero genre so thoroughly. I mean, you know, historically, like at the very beginning, all the heroes are muscle-bound you know physical feats are their thing and villains are the smart ones right they're lex luthor and and those kinds of characters right and they're they're setting elaborate traps and then the superhero smashes through it you know um so the whole thing is a kind of fantasy of the body over the brain and um you know we could see obviously things get more complex over time and you know lord knows you know the, the number of superheroes with phd's is uh rather far out of whack with <laughs> with the rest <laughs> of what society looks like but um you know so it gets more complex but i think that tension between the the sex symbol the body the attractiveness you know and then the guy who's actually toiling away doing all this work that's doing saving the war um is is perhaps a natural
0: one that's interesting and it'll be interesting to kind of discuss this further uh, when we have more interaction between howard and steve to see you know how is that playing like is there is there more of a feel of a threat between the two of them so i I look forward to kind of continuing this conversation um interestingly in the script he also calls out uh, when he's talking about what what rays are neutral he brings up gamma rays are also neutral and i thought that was an interesting thing to have had there that they obviously cut but uh again they love throwing gamma rays into stuff and always trying to find those connections to uh to the hulk side of the stories yeah um, all right, so then he touches this wire uh, to the pellet uh, and everything blows up. This goes back to just the fact that you know how are they using this thing? Why is it that he touches the wire to the pellet and it blows it up? why is it not even picking it up with the with the you know mechanical arms that causes it to blow up like what does it take to like what is this special about this wire that that causes the explosion? I know I'm, again, asking questions that none of us have answers to when it comes to the science held by Tesseract weaponry, but... I always question this.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I wonder if it's just like it's supposed to be, oh, some sort of circuit was completed. We can rationalize what that looks like. And so it must like it's just an easy, you know, an easy way to to keep us into the the impending accident and doom. Like it's just a thing that, uh, you know, to my earlier point, we we maybe don't have to stop and think about and rationalize. How did that work? We just know that something was completed and this is why you turn off the power before you work on your electricity
2: <laughs> i mean i know i'm taking that lesson away from this you know don't touch <laughs> a wire to any you know alien technology i feel
0: safer for having seen the movie yes it's, that, it's that, teaching that's exactly lessons. Is. teaching lessons
1: that's right mm-hmm. that's right
0: uh kevin millington plays stark's engineer here he's the one by his side helping him out uh, i'm going to do the imdb game for him, oh my I'm just God. gonna I'm just gonna tell you what they are. I know you are Ugh. not a uh, somebody who studies Kevin Millington and his work, uh, so I figured I'll just tell you the four films. You say that accusationally. Are you someone who follows Kevin Wilmington? I have to tell you, he's my cousin.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> that me. that no, would no. be that would
0: be a trip if it was. <laughs> Uh, I assume that's why you booked me. That's right. (laughs) Yes. By the way, can you let Kevin know? We'd love to
2: chat with him. I've been piggybacking on his career my whole life. (laughs)
0: Uh, Kevin Millington is a British actor, and the four films that uh, IMDb says he's known for, of the five films he's been in, our uh, Captain America: The First Avenger, Goodbye Christopher Robin, in which he plays an American chap, Stan and Ollie, in which he plays a clapper loader, and Hyde Park on the Hudson, where he is hungry driver number four.
1: Did you for for just a second? Did you think I'm really going to play this with these guys and see what they see what they think? No, no, because no, that's not you know
0: I. It's called the IMDb game, but it doesn't mean I'm going to make you play it. Sometimes it's just it's just me telling you. Who, I can do the Hungry Drivers one through three, but to be honest with you, I would have been would have been stumped on the last one. That's right. Uh, the only other film he's been in was actually The Current War, and um, but that's the film that kind of disappeared because of all the the Harvey Weinstein uh, craziness. So, mm-hmm. um, but that's him. Uh, he's you know he pops in the background in some other scenes later, but. Um, that is our engineer here in the scene. And that's, that's everything I have for this minute. Do either of you have any other notes or should we, uh, wrap up shop today and come back tomorrow to talk more about post explosion? Let's do it. All right. Uh, Jason, do you, do you, you know, have people following you on the web? Like where should people learn more about you? Do you want them to just, uh, like head to the Amazon bookstore and buy your book? What's, uh, what's the best place for people to learn more about you? Well, that's the, obviously the ideal
2: scenario is uh, people buying five to ten <laughs> copies a piece of uh, Captain America and the National Superhero. But um, probably more reasonably, for free, go onto Twitter and find me at Real J. Dittmer. And uh, if you want to see my cat pictures and things of that sort, that would be the place to be.
0: <laughs> Fantastic. Well, we'll put that in the show notes uh, so everyone can check it out. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll be back tomorrow to talk about Minute 77. So... Pete, thanks as always.
1: I just hope, Andy, that we can dig deeply into more virginity math tomorrow. (laughs) Until next
0: time, true believers.
1: Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson This season's music is Spread the News by Anthony Vega. And this season's show art is by Winston Yabo. Find the show at truestory.fm. And if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, consider doing that for this show.